This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project where I talk with artists about their work and their lives. The ultimate goal here is to give listeners a better understanding about the experiences and people behind the artwork. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, straight on, and unscripted. This episode profiles Sarah Greenberger Rafferty. Sarah makes multimedia-based works that incorporate painting, photography, sculpture, installation, and performance. Her work often features printed images of clothing, domestic objects, and portraits of comedians mounted to thick plexiglass shapes, which are then typically presented on the wall like a painting. The imagery is diffused and blurry and prompts viewers to search for edges and conceptual anchors. A performance-based piece that was included in the 2014 Whitney Biennial addresses issues of authorship and references the physical mannerisms made by stand-up comedians. The work is full of intellect and sharp ideas and balances craftsmanship and politics and humor. We recorded the following conversation at my studio in the bed section of Brooklyn. One of the things I, um, you know, I snooped around on your website last night, and one of the things I got excited about was your about section <laughs> and you list your some of your favorite artworks which i thought was really generous some people like to keep that in yeah and i wondered if we can just for fun and as an exercise talk about a couple of them is that yeah, right absolutely um and what the other thing i liked about what you did is you listed them chronologically um so you, there's like a historical timeline there which is nice so i thought we go from the front to the back okay the first one you list was the younger the body of the dead of the Dead Christ in the Tomb by Hans Holbein. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Oh, I think, yeah, Holbein. Yeah. Holbein. But that's 16th century. That's pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you've used that image in your work before. It's, I'll try and just describe it quickly. It's, it's a picture of Christ dead, rendered pretty realistically, like his flesh is rotting. It's um, very macabre. It's life-size. It's a little bit smaller, actually. A little bit smaller? It's kind of like three-quarter, unless he was like a mini. Yeah. So it's <laughs> right. pretty, it's pretty, it's it's a little bit smaller. I don't know the exact. Right. But he's very emaciated. Yeah. It's, it's a gruesome image. Yeah. And the other notable thing about it is the dimensions. It's like this very slender thing. It's like, like a coffin-like. Like coffin-like. Yeah. So what is it about that that makes the makes the list? That um, picture? Well, it's... Or that painting? It's sort of, um, well, one interesting thing is um, there's so many paintings of Christ's body that you could put on the, you know, on a list of favorite artworks. And I probably only came to that kind of thing later in life because, you know, I didn't really go to Europe until I was in my 20s and and 30s. And, um, and I just wasn't exposed to that. I wasn't raised Christian so it wasn't a myth that um that spoke to me in a Mm -hmm. in a sort of emotional way um and so I first got interested in that specific painting from reading um Julia Kristeva's The Powers of Horror and there's a chapter about the body of Christ and basically how that painting specifically is um is yeah because it's like he looks like a man Mm -hmm. not a god right um and there's plenty of paintings in that kind of canon but it's really extraordinary and and so it's sort of psychoanalytic and and interesting in that way and then um 
I also like the scale. I like the fact that it was sort of this horizontal, just exactly the dimensions of the body. Right. Um, it's like a perfect side view. Yeah. And I imagine that was like a fairly radical perspective to portray Christ at the time. Yeah. I actually don't know, but I think so. Cause I think that's because like we want to see important... him like up and yeah. forward Yeah, and not so powerless looking. Yeah. This is like a, I think, I guess it's a good Friday painting okay. in, in terms of the, or, you know, it's in the tomb. So mm-hmm. it's, it's after he's down from the cross, but before he's risen. Right. Right. Um, so maybe he's the most mortal at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I love that. Pa- and then I finally was able to see that painting in real life um, in 2013. Where is it? It's in Basel. Okay. Um, it's in the Kunstmuseum Basel. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was It was just one of those, exp- it was like a religious experience, but like a religious art experience. Right. Um, and of course, I have no idea what the painting meant in its own time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reading through the 20th century and the 21st century. And um, another reason, like retroactively, why I got really obsessed with that painting is because, um, you know, I'm really interested in the ways that images go through cult- culture. And I just kind of eat that stuff up and I'm just like constantly a consumer of mm-hmm. not like dank meme style, but just like sort of images that travel through the, um, through news and through social media and etc. and things that are reproduced sometimes not even consciously. So like, um, I don't know if you remember during the Boston marathon bombing, um, a cop leaked a picture of the, a body of um, of Tamerlan Sarnayev, the older brother. After he'd been run over or After something. he'd been run over yeah. and shot. And he's laying on a metal table about eye height. And This is back in the morgue or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it was totally leaked. And it's a little bit of a close-up, but it is a spitting image of that Holbein painting. Shit. In terms of composition and position of the body and um for me that kind of like floored me like I don't I don't have any I'm not trying to sympathize or make a connection between this terrorist and Christ I'm not right, like right, right. I, I think I could get in a, a lot of hot water for making like a one-to-one relationship however um, there's something about that kind of image right. or, you know, or the people it, that, that, that compose those images, right? Exactly. There's, they, they don't even know right? it, but it's also like, um, I think if I'm interested in Christ at all, it's Christ as a man mm-hmm. <laughs> and not as a God. Sure. Um, and so I'm also interested in like, the fact that that he's one of the most ubiquitous um, subjects in the history of art, um, and it's usually because he's a god, mm-hmm. um, but it's really just a vessel for artists to express other things, you know. Sure, sure. Um, but I'm interested in that man, and I also read that um, Reza Aslan book um, called Zealot, which is about. Um, 
the life and times of Jesus of Nazareth. And it's basically about Jesus, the man it's right. Really amazing. Um, and so I don't know, I'm not like, it sounds like I'm some sort of like Jesus freak or, or a scholar or something, but I, for some reason I've gotten, I think after going to Europe, especially in 2013, I went on this big kind of insane, like teen type tour where I went to 10 cities in three weeks Mm -hmm. um, on a grant that I got for my job. And I just looked at art like 10 hours a day, every day, like nonstop. Right. And I just, it really changed the way that I think about it. Sure. And I imagine the image came first, not the the narrative behind it. Yeah. The, the painting. Yeah. So, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's yeah, it's how our brains operate. Yeah. You see something, then you want to unpack it perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a powerful painting. Um, and then on the, on the tail end of that list that you list on, that you have on your website, uh, a more recent work from 2013 is Camille Henra's Henra. Am I pronouncing it? I think that? it's Henro. I'm Henro. Not sure. Uh, gross fatigue. That's yeah. a video piece. Mm-hmm. And uh, I watched a little like mini, mini documentary that was featured her talking about it and spliced in some edits from it. And um, I can understand why you were drawn to it. I think it's, it's multi-layered. It's dealing with um, found imagery in a way or found clips of things. Um, it deals with creation myth. Not that y- your work deals with creation myth at all, but the way that it was put together, these like many layers of images, I was like, oh, there's a little bit of Sarah. That's in Sarah's wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, am I right in sort of connecting your way of thinking working to, to that video piece? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a couple of things. Um, I'm sort of video, I'm kind of always video art um, skeptical. Now I'm still speaking in these Christian terms, but, um, why, um, just cause some, I think so much of video art is like self-indulgent and boring. And, and I watch a lot of film Mm -hmm. mainly because my husband is a huge cinephile. And so we go to see movies in the theater, you know, multiple times per week, every Mm -hmm. week of the year, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he does more than I, but I end up going to see a lot. So I'm pretty, lay conversant in film um and i just i think up until about i don't know like 15 years ago there was a lot of video art that was just insufferable Mm -hmm. i mean there's a lot of great things a lot of video arts are are some of my favorite works um but so i think that this piece um and it's interesting because i have a kind of tie-in to the 2013 trip so that was I went to, including Basel, I also went to Venice um, because it was the year of Biennale and that was Mm -hmm. the Encyclopedic Palace um, show. And that's what Camille Henro was in. And basically, I mean, I think she lives in New York. I've never met her. She's exactly our age or, you know, she's exactly my age. Um, And so there's a kind of generational affinity. I guess in distinction to the sort of like millennial kind of tree carton video vibe that is um, like I respect, but I don't respond to as much. Sure. Um, And so this was something that I think I told you I was on this really rapid trip, 10 cities in three weeks, which is 
so American and so stupid, but I was really going for this overload thing. And mm-hmm. I had a couple of days in Venice because I squeezed them in because I really wanted to go to Venice and see the Biennale. I'd never done that before. I wanted to kind of, I. it sounds really ridiculous, but you know, I've been living in New York for almost 20 years. I'm from the Midwest. I am pretty provincial in terms of my upbringing. Um, you know, I did go to, as you know, like a world-class art school in RISD, but I always kind of felt like an interlocutor because I was like from the Midwest and I, you know, I would show up in RISD and all these bands that everyone knew. And, you know, my favorite kind of like RISD story that made me know that I wasn't in the Midwest was like every person who at my high school would have been like an abject nerd mm-hmm. was like the coolest yeah. person at RISD. Yeah. And I was like, my whole wor- world order was like upside down. I completely identify you know that. that? Yeah. Well, coming from a small New England town, yeah. even never that, been yeah. like when I got to Providence, it was like a massive city to me. Like, Oh my God. And my, my like access to anything outside of uh, the mainstream was MTV and skateboard culture, which for all intensive purposes are still pretty, pretty known things. So to yeah. like go to my first party at say like Fort Thunder or something, my whole like artistic, political, social consciousness flipped upside down. Yeah. Uh, anyways. Yeah, totally. A little, little tangent there. Yeah. But, no, that's yeah. a tangent, but I was always like, I, I will always keep that feeling of like total world, um, discombobulation Mm -hmm. and it's one of the gifts of being able to go to college and leave home and I'm so grateful for it um but anyway so I didn't I I'd never been to Venice I'd never been to Basel I've never been to the great museum I mean I still haven't been to so many of the great museums of western art I mean luckily I grew up in Chicago we have like a world-class encyclopedic museum but it's not the same right um because our main cultural activity was like going to the bears games you know that was like that was number one then number two you would go to football games with your family yeah we had season tickets oh great yeah that that was i mean i'm like a nebraska chicago family so right um so real football type things and that's not to say that my my dad's really interested in art and he right so um, did you come aware around like the Jim McMahon oh, refrigerator yeah, Perry gen. era. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My dad was at that Super Bowl. Oh, wow. Yeah. He like went to New Orleans and I remember distinctly watching it on TV and thinking like, my dad's there. Actually, there's an amazing book. Were you like looking for him in the crowd shot? Who knows? Yeah. I mean, but that was the best thing. But sure. basically there's a really good book on the, the if you're into the 85 Bears, um, this Rich Cohen book. That's really good because you were asking me before about books. So that's an amazing book right, that right, I read right, right. in the past year. Anyway, back to my overarching story. So I feel very provincial, even being in New York, world-class city, you know, international city, it's way better than being anywhere else in the U.S., in my opinion. Um, for nearly 20 years, I still feel like kind of a regional artist mm-hmm. of New York City. Um, I've mostly shown here. I haven't really done much out of the city. So in 2013, I went on this trip and I was trying to just at least see a lot of art. I didn't really talk to many people. I just went to museums and galleries and I just like took it all in. And part of that was 
seeing finally the Holbein for the first time, which was a, a work that I was basically making a pilgrimage to go see. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this like Christian word, but basically, you know, Art Basel was going on, but really my main point in going to Basel was to see that painting, right, right. <laughs> um, which I did. And But then I also went to Venice and I only had like two days um, because again, I, I planned it like a, you know, like a, I planned it really like a Midwesterner, you know, not like a cultured European who knows you have to take time and right, like, right, right. you Slow know, it down. yeah. So, but whatever, that's my, that's my way of doing things. It's also what we can afford to do. We yeah. don't have a ton of time. So, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't get a huge grant from, um, my college, but basically, um, so I gave myself this rule in going through the encyclopedic palace. I was like, video art, if it's not getting me in the first couple of seconds, I'm not going to stick around. And there were a couple of really great video pieces that year. There was, I think there was a Steve McQueen that was really amazing. Mm -hmm. There was, um, like, I think it was an Israeli artist that did this other video that had like an animatronic, um, surgery like this surgery machine kind of with horror movie type audio that was really good but I walked into Camille Henro's piece and I was instantly mesmerized and I sat down and watched the whole thing and it was just I guess what yeah maybe a way that I'd been feeling and I just thought it was really a masterpiece sure um, so the little bits I saw were completely compelling. Yeah. I mean, it was like her spliced in talking about it, but yeah. when they would cut to it, I was like, Oh yeah, no, yeah, I'm in. It's really interesting because I showed that video in my class just yesterday. The one you're talking mm-hmm. about, um, gross pro- fatigue it's called, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. this was the, I showed the video you're talking about the sort of like produced thing where they're interviewing oh, yes, her. Yes. Um, my students had, uh, they were talking about research and art and they were doing a presentation and this kid did a pretty weak job of presenting Camille Henro's work um and it was based on this interview for her new museum show um and students were kind of like freaking out because they were like oh my god how can this white woman do Ikebana and how she's cultural appropriation and and students were kind of like ready to go down her throat and mm-hmm. and I was co-teaching it and it was sort of like oh well it's a little bit more nuanced than that and you know there's I'm not saying it's not her right to do that or it is her right to mm-hmm. do that but it's anyway the reason I'm bringing it up is because we had a huge conversation with my students yesterday in relation to that video and also in relation to this interview um where the next generation of artists current students are really and you see this in the coverage of the Whitney Biennial um there's really something coming in terms of like who has the right to represent what um and that's also especially when you get into like the the charged territory of race gender sexuality all these yeah very you know, politically charged life experiences. Yeah. So, I mean, anyway, that's kind of on my mind. It's interesting that you brought that up today because I think 
one of the best things about teaching is your expectations and your sense of like what's I don't want to say really right and wrong but you know the best thing is that you learn something from your students now I think they might be going a little bit too far because they are ultimately in this case they're a lot of my students you know they're they're adolescents mm -hmm. at their um this is all undergrad right undergrad yeah. and they're being given tools that that are new to them mm -hmm. um so they're testing out those critical tools which is great but i think they're a little bit um sometimes a little bit sort of they have a, a tendency to be for lack of a better term black and white mm -hmm. um the nuance is a little bit lost right. in them but that's goes with people trying out um or it seems like people are going looking for the thing to attack first before yeah. they even or not attack maybe that's not a fair word but but to sort of disassemble and find the error, yeah, um, the social error or the political error in it, um, I, yeah, and point out like you shouldn't do that. Uh, like that's like the first move as opposed to maybe taking it in holistically. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't want it to be like we're meta talking about the Dana Shuts because I think that's right. a separate issue. Yeah, for sure. Um, but in this case, um, I really think it's like we as faculty are giving them tools to dismantle you know the patriarchy and and um settler colonialism and racism um but it's like anyone lear learning to use a tool at first like you know you're just you're you're honing your skill sure and so those critical tools are still pretty um and then you add as you say like emotion on right. top of it and feeling and that's right makes or the, the like the current cultural context yeah i mean there's a lot of things that have led up to yes this psychic moment so yeah. i yeah. mean what do we expect at a certain absolutely point? but sure. but i think camille henro's piece gross fatigue is really mm -hmm. um yeah i think it's a masterpiece mm -hmm. um and i think it's sort of because it's watchable, because it's visual, because mm -hmm. it's art and not like, um, it's not like a documentary, like sure. it's not in that vein, Sure. Um, but it's a construction that, that is not, I think sometimes, I mean, I think that's not just a video art, but I think some, a lot of art is, is just, so obtuse sure and can be really alienating um, yeah her, her videos polished well yeah. produced yeah consumable for me as someone who when you yeah. said i like a, a video work has to catch me in the first couple seconds or else i'm gone i'm in that same yeah. same boat so um but just the editing and everything in the in the track and the scores yeah. like i think i could probably sit down and watch this and that's not to say that i won't watch long things like i've watched films that are eight hours or plays that are eight hours but mm -hmm. i'm not like um trying to torture myself i don't got time for that yeah. shit sometimes <laughs> <laughs> um well I, you have two children yeah. so they don't have those yeah it's a whole nother thing yeah um you know one of the things that uh i ask people in these 
recordings is is how they identify themselves to new people they meet basically and you know i sort of we were talking before we hit record like my reasons for doing this project and and you know this is one of those selfish reasons like i sometimes wrestle with how i explain myself to someone new how do i define what i do um so that this person is comfortable with the the conversation and i don't like make them hate me right away or <laughs> confuse them or you know because there's a lot of misconceptions about artists out there um so I'm curious how you feel that question when you have to describe yourself as an artist or even your artwork to someone new. Yeah. I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, which I hope to almost always be, but, um, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with vibe and I like, I'm, I can be deeply insecure about how I identify. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think sometimes my feelers are up erroneously and I don't think that's because um I'm insecure about being an artist because I definitely yes I identify as an artist and I identify that as um not really a job but more like an alternative lifestyle sure I mean I'm pretty non-alternative I'm sort of like a hetero cis woman that is married to a man and I'm pretty middle class, you know, I have a job and healthcare and a little retirement account and right. that kind of stuff. But right. within those constructs, I feel pretty um, alternative lifestyle, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. We should add in that you're a Bears fan too. Yeah, <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> right, I, right, right. I can't, I actually, I can't do... Um, NFL football anymore yeah I again one of those things I've I've become educated to and it's one of those things of my youth I've had to kind of leave behind sure um, I, I understand that I mean see also events of this week and um, murder suicide brain injury and all that kind of stuff oh with Aaron Hernandez yeah yeah Anyway, back to the so I identify as an artist for sure. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. No, I mean I I but I can no longer be an NFL fan. Yeah. Um I'll say that publicly. Yeah. Um but I uh um but I like sports narratives. Sure. I mean I'm still into it and I still I I do really like sports. Sure. As a thing. Yeah. Um It's good escape. Yeah, and also just I think it's a very apt um i just think about a lot of sports metaphors when i'm thinking about making art and um and i have a lot one? of respect what can you think of one yeah like i i always think about well my favorite sport is tennis that's my main right, sport right, right, right. and um and i and i think that's partly because it's like a solo sport and not a team sport even mm -hmm. though I have a lot of respect for team sports. Um, I I think about how to um, to maintain play. You always got to go back to the middle. Um, you got to keep your balance, and you have to, you know, it's. So I always think about that balancing act and that mm -hmm. that check in. Yeah, I imagine that, that using that language or that way of thinking about stuff helps when you're teaching too. Yeah, I try. I mean, yeah. I. I, I don't, I, yeah, 
I think I'm a lot of times that like old teacher that makes jokes that just or analogies that the students are just like what yeah <laughs> and then and then I just like amuse myself sure but sure. um but yeah so I identify as an artist um and I think like I was saying when people ask me I think a lot of it is um yeah being honest I have an issue where I'm I often feel like instantly disrespected which is not a good look but right. it just I think being a woman and being really small um my whole life I think has made me have like big um anti antennae for that sure um which is defensive. Which I work on all all the time mm -hmm. but and I don't think it's all unfounded I mean it's really hard to be you know to be to having been worked for like been working for 10 years or um you know maintaining your own household which is difficult for everyone mm -hmm. and all this kind of thing and then be called like cute or people right. tell you like you look like you're 19 right i mean which is starting to happen less and less as i approach 40 but it still happens and everyone you know there's the culture where it's like well you should be happy you look young but um i just always get offended because i think like yeah but the things that i've done are not what a young person have, has done sure. and i know what 19 is like and there are a lot of amazing 19 year olds, but you're still like a kid mm -hmm. and there's no way you could have done that much by age 20. Right, That's right. just math. Right. Um, and I'm not saying I've done that much by age 40, but, um, I don't know. I just, so I think sometimes the way I, I, I think I put like a pretty, um, grimacy like face up sometimes when I feel when I feel um pre-disrespected which is right a problem. or that energy started to creep into yeah I'm not defending that behavior dialogue. but yeah. since you asked me I think <laughs> when the times when I'm the most um insecure and then and I think I act the toughest about who I am is when I kind of feel like something's coming so sure it's something i need to work that's on. well said i know well i don't know <laughs> i don't know that you do you know you're not alone i have many people close to me in my life that subscribe to the same point of view and, and use the same bag of tools to sort of deflect or get away or defend or stand up for yourself in these situations so um i think it's quite common and I don't think it's helpful for us to, to put it out there so yeah. that we don't feel so alone sometimes. No, totally. Um, maybe we should talk about some artwork for a okay. second. Yeah. Um, when I, the last stuff I saw of yours, well, most recently I saw a piece of yours in the wild at the Hort collection because I went to their, oh, their the party, little the little H. H. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I feel like when I consider your work, there's, there's, there's the body of work that's the sourced imagery that's been printed and uh, and applied to uh, plastic mm -hmm. pieces of plexiglass that act like um, these hybrid painting sculptures. They mount on a wall typically. And then I also think back to the first piece of work I ever saw of yours outside of school, which was the pie splat piece at PS1, which feels like 100 years ago, whenever that was. 
it was um 2006 so okay i so guess not, it not was that 11 ago. years ago yeah um uh, the internet defined you as a multimedia artist. So you work, <laughs> you work in a bunch of different ways. Um, but some of the stuff that I consider while I'm looking at your work is, uh, particularly with your most recent show at Uffner, when you, when it was a lot of the, um, images mounted on plastic with a interesting shape contour were, were clothing pieces. So I think about costume, I think about, um, identity that's associated with those costumes or dresses or gender and identity. Um, uh, I think about the shape that you're choosing to mount these things on. I think about the process in which you've made them as, as someone, you know, I roll my own experience of art into like, oh, how did Sarah make this? I really like that gesture. Oh, this is, there's like a beautiful bloom and blur that where the ink is running from the mounting process and that's sort of painterly. So I like go into that avenue. Um, so there's like a there's a there's many different layers of of things that I sort of take in. Um, I mean I'm wondering what what I'm overlooking or what you think maybe other people are overlooking. Sorry, a little fruit fly or something. <laughs> but uh, is there is there anything that people overlook or that you wish people paid less attention to or more of or? Um, that well, first of all, one. thank you for the thank you for the um, summary. It's it's really generous to even think that anyone you know that you're looking and considering like I appreciate that um what's overlooked well I mean I think sometimes yeah I think the thing that I get bummed about when it is overlooked is um but I I am consciously using this as a tool like I think well the one thing is um sometimes I've said this before but sometimes I think like and you went to RISD too so you kind of know like Going to an art school like that, um, specifically that school at that time, you just learn how to make objects. Mm -hmm. It's just like not a thing that you would think. Like, it's just, you learn how to make objects. You learn how to, if you don't know how to do it, figure out how to do it. Um, you feel as if you have to do everything yourself. Right. You're talking um, about the craftsmanship component, yeah. the actual like using your hands yeah. to make something. Yeah. And okay. I think sometimes I think that's a huge blessing because mm -hmm. you do see a lot of artists who don't know how to make anything. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes I think it can be also a curse because it's like, um, I think the things that when I get the most bummed about people reading my work is when there's only a kind of formal, because I think I'm using the formal and using the, um, the novel i guess like the how did she make that type vibe and right. the beautiful colors as a um i think of it as like a trojan horse mm -hmm. um and i think yeah i mean this could also be linked to the earlier answer about like how do i identify and about getting prickly when people see me and think that i'm you know a cute young girl, mm -hmm. which is, I 100% don't identify as a cute young girl. Like I think even since I was like five years old, I thought I was like either I, th I want to say like, I thought I was like a boy, but not in a trans way. Like mm -hmm. just sort of like I was friends with boys. I identified just like 
because that's the dominant person in our culture, mm-hmm. you know, so unfortunately. Um, but uh, so I think that's kind of related because in the same way that I, I do sometimes think like, or I'm constantly trying to work against the tension of making making a well-crafted, beautiful object that's like has some kind of question about its um, or mystery or something about its its uh, manufacture. Um, but then also, you know all of these other things that I'm interested in, sure. which, which might like in a different artist yield a different type of work, right? a different look. I may have set you up yeah, for s- that, for this, because I, I just went through a list of formal qualities Yeah, and maybe I'm coming at that because that's easiest for me to yeah, talk totally. about when the work's not in front of me. Yeah, totally. And, um, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of great ideas and concepts in your work too. I know comedy is important to you. Um, it meant, you know, in the same little thing that defined you as a multimedia artist, it lists, um, body politics as mm-hmm. an important idea of, in your work too. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, I don't know, I guess what I say, let's see, I'm just thinking about like artist statements and that kind of thing, which those always, are kind of cursed documents. It though. takes years off my life every time I have to do it, but I still apply for things and yeah, that's where they come in handy applying for stuff. And I, um, and I think that I kind of, I change, it kind of changes a little bit every year or every six months. But, Mm -hmm. and I think that's healthy change. Yeah, totally. But Um, being absolute about this stuff, I think is problematic at a certain point. Um, you know, I I read a um, a review of your show at Document that was I think Rachel linked on her web, Rachel Offner's mm-hmm. website came out in February 2017 in Art in America, and that was a funny one. It was it was, a fa- it, was a, it was favorable. Yeah, it was pretty favorable. Yeah. But it, it, I remember the the um, prose being kind of like head scratchy. Yeah, but yeah. Well, there's a line that I wrote down, um, and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but. Um, the writer said, even after one is an understanding of Rafferty's work, it can be difficult to determine how she achieves certain effects, enhancing the elusive nature of her imagery. And I wonder if we could connect that back into like, you know, changing your, your, the direction you're taking your work or perhaps your intention or how it's going to be read or how it's going to be, how it's going to land out there for viewers and for yourself. Um, and maybe I could share a quick little story. Yeah. I'm a proud owner, owner of one of your pieces. And it's a um, an image of a Band-Aid printed on the backside of, uh, you know, like a, what is it, half-inch plastic that you use, cut in the shape of Band-Aid. It's enlarged. Um, it's, the, the Band-Aid image is sort of blurry and fuzzed out through the application process. But I got in a debate with my wife Anika about it. And I think I even emailed you. It's like, we're, we're, we're arguing over whether this is a bandaid or a menstrual pad. <laughs> and the two are very related in a way, but there was that ambiguity that was kind of nice. And it led to us like, no, it's this, no, it's that. <laughs> and, and, and it, you know, as I was sort of thinking about talking to you, I was like, that was a lovely little moment that I think 
speaks to like not not having like a specific landing spot for the work i don't know does that make sense yeah thank you for that for reminding me of that um that's yeah that's a great that's like my favorite kind of story yeah um or interpretation um yeah i definitely 100 percent wouldn't want anything to i I want it to be kind of squirrely i want it to be for sure i want it to be um I don't know if ambiguous is the right word, but I want it to be multifaceted or the kind of thing that um, that can have multiple interpretations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all artists are, you know, trying to work on like five different levels at once. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the best artworks, like all the artists' artworks and my favorite artworks list kind of do that for me there's Mm -hmm. different things i like about them and yeah they hit a few different marks for you yeah Mm -hmm. um and and each piece has multiple things but um but yeah i mean wait now i forgot the question (laughs) no i mean we were just talking about like the agenda of one's art yeah if and, and like I like this word land that someone else used in one of these other conversations. Yeah. I've sort of adopted it. Like how the work lands, lands, yeah. lands for people. Yeah. Um, and how um, your, the way you set it off into the world might be different than how it lands for someone else. And I used, you know, the I th- band-aid menstrual pad. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I think, um, I think like the landing thing and like your question about, oh, well, the internet describes you as this and... Um, I mean, I think I always think, and maybe this is a way of like deluding myself into keeping at it. Like I always think I'm in the long game. Sure. Um, I always think that the most important thing to me, this sounds a little bit weird, but is uh, the ethics of making the thing. Mm -hmm. Like feeling that I'm doing things for the right reasons Um, it's part of the reason why I either I change my work often or I don't do like you brought up the pie things. Like I probably could have been like the proto, um, Lucian Smith and just done like a hundred of those and it would have been popular and I would have been known for it. Who knows? Maybe I wouldn't have gotten the traction because I wasn't the same kind of human. Like wasn't there some confusion? Can I put pause on this for a yeah. second? There's some, some someone put an image of one of your works and yeah. labeled it him as, as the maker. Yeah, yeah. Anyways. Yeah, and then like everyone trolled that website. Yeah. And then the funny thing was I I uh, I think it was via Instagram uh-huh. and they were asking like does anyone have any of these works? Um like get in contact with us. It was like a consultant or something Yeah, like and, that, right? and I just like wrote on there, I was like, hey, that's my work. I'll gladly sell it to you at Lucian Smith Prices. <laughs> and they were like, they sent back a message that was like, you're a great artist. Oh my gosh. <laughs> or something like that. Um, so dismissive. <laughs> yeah, and it's fine. And but um, But in other words, like one of the reasons why you never see me, or I hope, that you never see me doing something like just making more product in a style is, and this is probably bad for my bottom line. Um, but like, I just, I do not 
I am so scared of ever doing anything just because it's um, popular or just because it's like, I know it's going to sell. I mean, how do you even know that? That's not possible to know because anytime, I mean, it's, that's just not one of my skill sets. I think plenty of people are really good at that, knowing that. Um, But I think, and you had put in some of the notes like, oh, would you rather be a full-time artist? Would you rather be like, what's your ideal situation? Um, I mean, for me, teaching is part of my um, conception of myself as an artist. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I made that idea up when I was in art school because I was just, my mind was blown on like Mm -hmm. a daily basis. Um, But, uh, yeah, I think I'm sometimes to my own detriment, I'm so scared of, um, basically doing something that I wouldn't respect. Sure. No, that's Um, fair. (laughs) That, uh, that I always keep a day job. I just, I don't, I think the art money is, is very helpful Mm -hmm. and, there's no way to keep a studio in New York or even to do some of the production or, um, at this point, there's no way for me to even really pay all my bills without some of it. Sure. But I just get so scared of relying on that. It just feels so, I mean, something's wrong with me. No, (laughs) no, no. I, I don't think, I think that's a healthy point of view. I'm a proponent of, side revenue streams or side gigs or side projects for a couple reasons. One, it takes the the fiscal pressure off the artwork so that you don't have to make something you know is going to sell so you don't hate yourself. The other thing is it gets you out of your own head and gets you out of the studio and it's, um, you know, I'd like to think of us as multidimensional people and I think it's healthy for us to answer those calls and do different things outside of just being an artist in the studio. Um, so I agree, um, yeah. and I think that's a healthy, healthy thing. While we're on teaching, yeah, um, you've been teaching undergrad at different schools for what ten years at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if, if um, there is a um, particular message or thing that you want your students to take away from your instruction. You teach um, studio classes. I guess yeah. we should we should yeah, give I a little te- context first. Yeah, I teach studio classes, and increasingly I've also been doing some sort of reading. I don't want to say theory classes, mm-hmm. but um, uh, right now the bar is kind of low, unfortunately. Um, I want the... Um, I'm really concerned with literacy art literacy and I want my students to be um challenged to want to know things Mm -hmm. and to be curious about the world and to bring that into their work um increasingly I guess I'm most interested in in meeting the students where they are and then pushing them you know I think a lot of I don't know. I don't really remember this from when I was in art school or in college. And I think maybe that's also different from art school. But like, I think a lot of 
young people are interested in like doing their thing. They see something as their thing mm-hmm. um, from a young age and they're not really as comfortable pushing themselves. Um, one thing I see, cause I teach in a liberal arts school, which is really different than an art school. But Hampshire college. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing I see that is really fascinating and this is like on balance um, because I have some of the best art students that I've ever had at this school because it's just so um, open um, and you can really cultivate relationships. But with the sort of younger students, um, I see such an ability to just like jump right in and and see, um, you know, gender as fluid and as a construct and see, um, you know, race as a as a cultural construction and all these kinds of things. And then you're like, you're like, but this thing is art. And they're like, Oh no, Mm -hmm. you know, art is realistically rendered this, that, or, you know, right. And I really work. It's some technical feat that not everyone can do. And then like I teach drawing and this semester and I'm like, okay, people, this is not a class in pencil. Mm -hmm. That's not what this is a class in. Um, and it's just, it's fascinating because also, um, they, the thing that I noticed this week, a present, a lot of presentations, like, um, you know, when we were kids, there wasn't Googling everything Mm -hmm. there. You had to go to the library, all this kind of thing. And I don't want to be like an old crotchety person, but I do believe that the field of art is different than like what is posted on deviant art or what you can see on Tumblr. Right. And I might be wrong about that in 20 years. That might be like the wrong, like maybe the great democratization of art is important and maybe I'm being a snob, but, um, I, yeah, I want to, I want to turn them onto things that they haven't been turned. I want to blow their minds and turn their, them onto things that they wouldn't otherwise find during their scrolling. Mm -hmm. And, that's been increasingly kind of difficult because of technology. I don't know. Or access to certain things. I don't know. Hmm. I have no idea. Yeah. Lately this week I've been on, I've been hearing that no child left behind has really fucked up the students, you know, George Bush era education policy. Oh, okay. So like right now those kids are in college, just starting to get in college. And I find the majority of my students sad to say barely literate Hmm. and I don't mean like literate in the way that like your daughter Ruba probably can read a book like they can read words and write words but like the ability to think critically and to unpack who's writing and what kind of publication it's in and to look up terms they don't understand and to to kind of stand back in the college level reading um I'm I don't know if it's just this year, but I'm finding it like, oh, wow, I'm an art teacher, but I'm thinking like I have to teach these kids how to read. Or, and be critical. Yeah. Because it's a question. Things. Yeah. It's ha- it goes hand in hand with yeah. art. I literacy. wonder if that's a new phenomenon because I feel like I, I'm still learning how to do those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm the product of a rural public school system and I did I didn't learn much. <laughs> and. I wasn't a great student when we were students at RISD. Um, I didn't really hit my stride till the last year and a half where I was like, okay, this is what it means to work and think. Right. And um, 
push things. Um, so I don't know. Like I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm hesitant to say it's, it's current. Well, I, I mean, it I could wonder just if George Bush's poli- like no child left behind thing. Uh, I wonder if it's just if it's policy or if it's part of if it's a longer strain of uh, the fabric of America and the educational system here. Yeah, and I also think like adolescence is longer, and and it makes sense. You know, having been in the college teaching situation for over a decade, like it does make sense that you like you went to college at no, quote unquote normal age, right? Like you're 18. Yeah, when I was a freshman. Yeah, yeah. So like that makes sense. Like you were 20, 21 when you were. St- I mean, yeah, it's about maturity. It's maturity. Thing yeah, too. exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that's not like that's not a reflect. That is definitely real. Right. And I see that um, that. It, it sounds condescending, but sometimes it really does help to reframe yourself to think of like, oh, you're working with adolescents. Mm-hmm. These are, I don't want to say children because that can be read as um, uh, derogatory, but sure. but it helps me be a little bit more humane. Sure. I, I identify when I teach undergrad, I sometimes feel like it's not, this isn't college, this is high school in a way. 13th grade. Yeah, it's like. Um, and I don't know if that's what we're talking about, like the, the, the moment we're in or it's me getting, me getting older. Um, I think it's or maybe a, little a little bit, bit of both, both yeah. because I think, you know, college used to be for elites and that was majority white and majority mm-hmm. rich. And so we want everyone to go to college. Um, and that's totally, you know, it just comes with additional support systems that have to sure. be put in place. Um, I mean, Yeah, and I'm not an education policy person, so I don't know what the answer is, but I definitely feel like there's, um, yeah, it definitely feels like in college it's one of those hugely mixed mixed groups of students. There's some students that are quite handily doing things and understanding and other students that are really pretty remedial um Mm -hmm. and i was used to that when i taught community college but um yeah i mean i wonder if first year of college really does need to be just like a catch-up type thing but then uh, i mean i have no idea i'm not trained as a teacher right so i wouldn't be the person to do that job yeah um let's let's circle back to art and art making and um, you work in a few different ways and I'm always excited to talk to artists and be around artists that have multiple ways of working as someone that wants to I mean I make stuff that goes on a wall it's all 2d it's either drawing or painting but the materials I use and the marks I make vary and I love that sometimes that's confusing for viewers out there because that doesn't look like you made it or what's this new material like it's not always consistent. The, the touch is there, but the end result is flexible or elastic. Um, so you work, you sort of mix, you do digital stuff and then output it and then print it and then mount it. You also do performance pieces. So you're mixing photography, sculpture, 
all these different ways of working. Um, and you've even done some video work as, <laughs> as much as you uh, don't yeah. like video. No, uh, but I think it's a language that I'm like drawn to uh -huh, for sure. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I'm curious, like what, what dictates what material or way of working you'll utilize? Is it, does the idea come you like, this is the most appropriate form to realize it or is it something else? I mean, how does, can you walk me through that process? Yeah. I mean, it's usually, um, it's usually things are kicking around and then I try out, I usually, you know, it's a lot of trial and error. Um, I just recently made an 18 minute video, which like is insane to me, mm -hmm. but, um, that was partly, I set out to make like another three minute video. Cause usually that's my limit. Um, and, and it just kept going there just kept being things to put into it. And it was sort of, um, the first video that I made in a similar way of construction that I do my wall works or other works, which mm -hmm. is usually, um, you know, I collect a lot of impulse inputs. I collect images. I collect, um, turns of phrases, things like that. And then I just push them around. And I really think that I, mostly make things by making things. Mm -hmm. Um, I think thinking of an idea and then like illustrating it or executing it, um, is never very dynamic for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I do start with an idea or an outline of what I might do, but then I really make things through making things. So, um, it's either like a in, trial and error type thing. Yeah. Or in the studio sure. pushing things around. And sometimes that is like printing things or doing things on the computer. And it's pretty seamless between like a, a studio practice, what would be a traditional studio practice and then doing things digitally. Um, in the case of this 18 minute video, you know, I recently moved studios. I'm in a temporary location. Um, it was over the winter and I basically put my big computer on my husband's desk at home. I cleared it off and I just kind of, um, sublet that space and made it the space of my studio, even mm -hmm. though it was just a desk. Um, and I think that's part of why that video, which I'm pretty into, um, mm -hmm. uh, came out like it did. I think it really, um, it really was like bringing the studio to the desk. Right. And it was sort of a survival mechanism at a moment when I didn't really feel attached to my physical studio. I moved out of a studio of 11 years. Right. And um, I'm pretty big nester. Um, so I I like the the, cont the continuity of a space. Or it was a social comfort. space, too. You shared it with yeah, two I good shared, friends. Yeah, I shared it um, primarily with Rachel Fulon, oh, okay. um, a great artist. And then other artists have come right. and gone through. Um, but we, yeah, so that was like a kind of feels like a change. I think my work is really probably evolving again and I'm just in the middle of it. Um, again, back to the idea of, I don't really want to do something just because that's my style. I want to make sure I'm doing something because it's the right thing. So, mm -hmm. Um, and I also worked on this like semi retrospective show. Um, this is kind of getting to your question, which just opened in New Paltz in February and is traveling to Albany and to Stony Brook. 
um, later in the year. But because I teach um, full-time, I have only so many hours for the studio right. in my life. Right. Um, I don't have, I don't work with assistants. Um, I do work with some assistants in terms of fabrication. Like I go to Lamont to mount my pieces on Plexi and they mm -hmm. help me do it there. Mm -hmm. Um, sort of collaboration. Uh, but I don't have like a, administrative assistant and I don't have a steady studio assistant so I have only so many studio hours and one thing I noticed is like working on this show took so much administration because we also did a catalog that for the past couple of months I've hardly made anything new in studio mm -hmm. and oftentimes during the semester it's like triage like just barely replying to emails and getting things out for group shows and um, setting things up and so the summer is really my time and this will be the first summer that I'm not in my studio. Um, and I'm still in a temporary studio that's going to be hopefully resolved by September, but right. that kind of eclipses the whole, um, the whole summer. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think I'll be able to get work done. Um, anyways, that's all to say that a lot of the way that I work and a lot of the way, the things that have, for lack of a better word, that I've innovated in my studio come from the reality that I have only so much time. Right. And I didn't want to, I don't want to set myself up for failure by being um, someone who needs a lot of time or a lot of money to make a single artwork. Um, so I've come up with different ways to make work, um, not necessarily in a fast way, but in, in, the most expedient way um, being efficient yeah yeah and so there's a certain kind of artist that i can't be because of my lifestyle sure <laughs> and um yeah often it sounds like you embrace that too that's okay that's okay to i have that, to that because otherwise i i mean i am pretty resilient and i'm pretty ambitious and so the only way i can get things out there is to just um be okay with trying things sure and being able to adapt it sounds like you're able to adapt to the situation and the environment and make work to scale and appropriate within that. And yeah, I think that's good. Some people like have hard lines and like, I only will work in this type of space yeah. and they're not, they're not flexible. And yeah. that's a, you know, a pretty big obstacle to put in front of yourself. So, yeah. I um, mean, it's nice to hear that you're, you, you, you maintain a, a fluidity from space to space and yeah. You bring you bring your headspace with that as well, so that's good. Um, I came by your studio, the one that you had been in for eleven years, uh, for a visit one time years ago, and I noticed. Um, I'm going to have to like dig in the memory banks yeah. here, but uh, you had made drawings for your plexi pieces, like they were just quick on like copy paper. Yeah. Like I'm going to do a fish form, or I'm this is this is a like a quick almost doodle of the rubber chicken this yeah. is like back then yeah um and then you had also had built a, a foam core model of i think you're preparing for your show at uh, michelle grabner's the mm -hmm. suburban in chicago um is that a in a usual um program for you to sort of build a scale model 
work, make some quick sketches to like organize your ideas and then, and then set it up as you prepare for a show? Yeah. I mean, I, I do a lot of quick sketches for ideas for pieces. I think that's pretty, um, that's pretty standard, but Mm -hmm. it's a real like, um, efficient sort of cartoon caricature style. Um, that's very notational. Um, but and you never display those drawings. So no, you... I just, they're just like ideas yeah. that I have based on things that come to me while I'm working or while I'm thinking. And they're, j- it's, it's a way to get it out of my head and remind myself like what I'm thinking. They're schematics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I usually just do those. Yeah. With pen on paper, either in a sketchbook or like on bond paper or something right, like right. that. Quick. Um, yeah. And then, um, and I, but I do save them. You do. So I have, I have the archive of all those type things, um, but I've never shown them. No. Um, And sometimes they show up in like in catalogs or books as little small illustrations. Sure. Um, And then I do almost always make a scale model for solo exhibitions. Um, Still, even though I'm pretty proficient on the computer, that's still preferable to doing like a sketch up for me. Sure. And it's faster and easier for me. To build a one uh, uh, a cardboard yeah. model or yeah. foam core model. Yeah, okay. I just prefer it. Sure. Um, so that's how I do it, and things often change from from the model to the actual installation, but it's it really helps me. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I go back and forth. I I sometimes do a SketchUp or well, I do it in Photoshop, like laid wall out. by wall. Yeah, wall by wall. I've never done like a three dimensional build out. Um, but it's helpful, especially yeah. as we're talking about being efficient yeah. and organi- or organizing our time. Um, That's why Illustrator is so great. Wisely, you know, because we have yeah. we have all these other things going on. Yeah. It just helps to feel like you're on top of stuff sometimes or the illusion that we're on top yeah, of stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, is, this is, you know, related to this studio visit. Um, it, and it's sort of a fun one. And I ask a lot of artists in these settings, is there... Anyone, if you could have a dream studio visit with any person, doesn't have to be an artist, alive or dead, does anyone come to mind? Um, that's like, see, that's the kind of question that I really love and I really hate. Sure. Um, so, for example, in the job that I have now, um, when I when I applied for the job the year before and my colleague got it and then I applied for it again because there was a second job and one of the questions in the first round interview is yeah what person would you bring to talk to campus alive or dead something like that yeah um so you've gotten this before I've gotten that kind of question not exactly a studio visit and my answer again kind of goes back to my process which is like I am not an imaginative person I'm a pragmatic person okay like I do not, and that's partly something that I wish wasn't true because I would like to have um, huge dreams or be like fantastical or, um, you know, have a relationship to reality that isn't so, um, so literal. Mm-hmm. But I have a really hard time fantasizing like that, like about anything. Like I think, so when you, ask that question like my first instinct if I'm being honest is like 
well, it would be amazing to have a main curator from a European, like Kunstala that, you know what I mean? Like, because I'm thinking like, what is actually possible, but just slightly unattainable. And how could you parlay that forward? Yeah. But that's like so boring and so, um, (laughs) like it feels careerist, but it's not, it's mostly because I don't have that kind of imagination. Okay. Like, and I don't, I also don't feel like there's anyone that I could say that I would think like would want, like, of course, this is aside from whether they say yes or whether they'd be interested. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, sometimes the, the clearest example of this, I guess that is also reality based, but also kind of fantasy based is, um, you know, I used to work for Kosha von Bruggen, um, who passed away in 2009 and, she was really tough, but really encouraging of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and she never properly did like a studio visit because I was still pretty young and, but she was very encouraging. And sometimes I do wish that she was still around because she's someone whose approval and sort of encouragement was really important to me, even right. when it was bound up with other things so I think like maybe that's my most fantastical answer um sometimes in the studio or when I'm going through a situation where I'm trying to advocate for myself which is something I'm consciously trying to do more of um I think about Kosha and I wish that I could speak to her but yeah I have no imagination for fantasy studio visits that's fair I'm just trying to get real studio visits yeah (laughs) I hear you (laughs) Um, um, I guess maybe I want, you know, this is a good spot to ask you about, uh, current influences, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of tangentially related to like this mysterious real person dead or alive coming to your studio. Yeah. Um, like what, what, um, what things are you inspired by, um, art? related non-art related what helps you stay excited about this this life that we're living and chasing and um trying to stay on top of especially in this crazy time we're living in in this crazy city we're living in like what keeps you what keeps you going um the biggest thing that keeps me going is is feeling like it's an intellectual um intellectually curious pursuit um and i am inspired i am still inspired by art i think it's really easy to be cynical Mm -hmm. but i am still really inspired to see shows where um you know regular people are making magical things happen that like you know you wouldn't expect Mm -hmm. um I'm inspired by the history. I'm inspired by, um, you know, I think the world is really difficult right now and Mm -hmm. it's very easy to be like, you know, I do have the creeping feelings like, oh, none of this matters. This is so stupid. But, um, that's part of the conundrum of being an artist. Yeah. I think that's part of the conundrum. All that self doubt. Yeah. But I also think like, well, it's culture 
and I'm really dedicated to culture and I I still really like love seeing art and seeing material culture and seeing film and seeing um shows and concerts and um that is more and more than like the idea of being here for studio visits or galleries like that um connection is really important and then the other thing is like it's a living um field like i love talking to other artists like clearly you do you started Mm -hmm. the podcast um i love talking to other artists and curators and people involved and um i love having like you know a hundred people deep here in new york city that i would want to talk to right um writers and you know going out and being you know i'm not a very social person but i do like discussion groups and reading groups and i like just talking to someone and hearing people's um opinions and getting my mind like challenged and expanded so i think that's the thing that keeps me going right now it's still the community yeah um and the idea that um that there's that it's an intellectual pursuit yeah that is you know niche just like any other intellectual pursuit but um it's concentrated here and i think it's just it's just challenging and it's keeping my mind agile i hope and it's yeah that's what i'm inspired by yeah i i i agree Uh, you know this life encourages curiosity we started off talking about being curious or wanting to instill a sense of curiosity with your students and i think this this life and this dream and these pursuits all revolve or orbit around curiosity and i think that's good and through that we find purpose and meaning and however we define that for ourselves um and the other thing that i like about this life is if we're doing it right we're not railroading anyone you know we're putting something forward that's engaging and provocative and it's not destroying anyone um whereas a lot of other walks of life even if it's like an office job like that's a form of destruction to me because that person that's sitting at that i worked in an office for 10 years and i'm grateful for that paycheck it it helped me build a foundation for living here but a little bit of me was being destroyed every time i sat down in that chair for 10 hours um i don't know that's like a very romantic way to think about it but um it may be not appropriate but yeah no i mean i think it's totally appropriate and um i like the idea of being productively non-productive and i think it is something that i challenge that i have to challenge in my own mind because um because i have the sort of legacy of being a productive member of society in my midwestern roots and in my the way you know the way that I was raised um so I often I mean I think that that's just as much why I'm interested in um keeping my job because for some reason I I feel tethered to the idea of being like a real person but but at the same time 
I scramble that all the time because I like being a teacher because one of the reasons because I can walk in and I'm still myself the weird artist that makes decisions not based on um, logical situations Mm -hmm. like I guess the best example of that is you know at my old job they had these um, financial advisors that you could meet with and you know I was pretty young and I was just like all right I'll try this out I guess this is the thing you're supposed to do and I sat down and I brought all my numbers and he was like why do you live in Brooklyn why is your studio so much why do you pay for a studio outside of the house why do you do why don't you do this why don't you do that like why do you have to do and I was just like like a conversation with all my family members yeah and like (laughs) you know basically um for the privilege of being able to um, have this intellectual pursuit and and to live the lifestyle, which is really privileged of being able to do all this stuff, I'm basically, I'm not doing what you're supposed to do, quote unquote, to be a good capitalistic, you know, compound interest money saver. Right. I just... I think on the one lens, you're like, oh, that's really selfish. You're just spending all this money on some vanity project. But then on the other hand, like you're saying, it's like, it's not, it's not, um, oppressing anyone directly at least. Um, and there's something kind of amazing about being productively non-productive in the society that's like so geared towards being productive right. and so stacked against everyone, right. almost everyone. Right. I just read this book called Barbarian Days. Um, it's It was this memoir about this writer that traveled the world surfing before age 30 or whatever. Oh, cool. And he defines surfing as a, a productive piece of... Wait, what? how did you say it again? I was just saying like productive, productive non- non-productivity. Yeah, yeah as, as another thing. And... I identified with that as a as a okay. artist as well, just because it it's a feeling, and um, we hang all our hopes and dreams on that feeling sometimes. Um, before we close this out, you know, we've had some pretty uh, great subjects that we've sort of picked apart. Um, uh, Comedy and humor is an important part of your work, and. I feel like we can't leave without talking about that a little bit. <laughs> and I know you as someone that is, is fucking funny. And <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, I mean, for example, when I was texting about you coming over this week, I, was, I th- asked you, what non-art stuff do you want to talk about? And you said, I don't know, surfing, you know, connect back to surfing, uh, vaping. Uh, you said, I'm married to a man, so I know everything about men. Um, tennis. It was like, and I was, I think it was at the playground watching with my kids and I was like sitting there on the bench crying with laughter reading your text messages. Oh, thank you. Um, and comedians show up as um, features in your work, like the portrait of the comedian. And your your piece that was included in the Whitney Biennial um, a couple cycles ago sort of revolved around stand-up comedy. So I'm wondering where the love for comedy comes in and how that's important to you and seeps into everything else. Yeah, I think... Um... Well, thank you. I feel like um, I desperately want to be funny and I never know if I am, but um, thanks. So thanks for the compliment. Um, But I, uh, yeah, I think it's, first of all, I would 
die if I didn't laugh because I'm a pretty depressive kind of um, glass half empty type person. And so I think laughing and thinking things are funny and turning turning to comedy is so essential for my survival, mm-hmm. um, my personal survival and our survival. Um, and then I think I always am engaged with comedy because it's, again, it's that like, unattainable like male thing that as a child I was always like oh well if you're cool you're funny and Mm -hmm. that's all these boys and men are funny and right you're thinking about like the class clown at school class clown at school yeah Yeah. which was like definitely my my part of my purview Mm -hmm. um but it just looks different on a girl's body sure I mean maybe it's getting better I think um but yeah, so there's that. I think my family was really um, competitive about cracking each other up. And so that was something that I just was like indoctrinated into. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm competitive. So I just like entered the stream and just started started thinking about it. And then the more I think about the greatness of comedy is how it can really um, cut through like real issues for lack of a better word. And it, it, um, I don't want to say it like softens them, but it makes digestible, um, things that are really painful. And that's a really good tool for me to think about. And it's also like, it's a human scale. It's like one person taking on the world. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think about all those things. Um, and, and I'm really, yeah, I'm inspired by a good, a well-crafted, I mean, I don't think jokes are always great, but I'm inspired by well-crafted jokes, mm-hmm. um, uh, complex jokes. I think it's getting a little terrifying because my new catchphrase is first as farce, then as tragedy, which is a reversal of a Marx quote, which is first as tragedy, then as farce. Mm-hmm. History repeats itself, first as tragedy, then as farce. And now I really think we're first as farce, then as tragedy. Right. And that makes me, I mean, it just kind of devastates me that, that um, Donald Trump has like good comic timing. Right. It, it just. Well, he was groomed in front of, you know, yeah, in celebrity culture and exactly. around these types of people. Exactly. And, and so that whole thing just pretty much makes me, um, wonder about the future right reevaluate um, things maybe yeah i mean you i'm zero percent ready to seed comedy to fucking domestic terrorists like right 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 donald trump um, no and i don't think we will and yeah. i don't think real comedians will either no but i think that there's or the world of comedy no i think there's like an adjustment They're not on though. his team no for sure not <laughs> but i think there's like there's an adjustment and also he has no sense of humor he just has good well you have to have empathy to have a sense of humor he has none of that yeah Yeah. he but he has he he does have classically good joke timing like delivery Hmm. which is depressing right right i mean that and that's part of what's gotten him popular right are there any comedians that you are into right now um i've been re-watching veep yeah so that's not new season 
the new season, I watched the first episode and I really didn't like it. I think mm. it's too close. Right. And it's too sad. Right. But I did rewatch the first three seasons over the past couple of weeks and don't judge. <laughs> that took me very No, quickly. that show's brilliant. But, but I have basically, I mean, I've been dying. Like there's this one joke um, in, I can't remember which season, maybe second or third season where Selena Meyer goes, it's about, they're having like an abortion thing. And she goes, I can't identify as a woman. Men hate that. And women hate, women who hate women hate that. And I think that's pretty much all women. (laughs) And I just like watched it over and over and over and over and over again. And it kind of killed me. It's a very poignant thing right now. Yeah. Or through history, probably. Yeah. I mean, but it's just, it's a hilarious joke, too. Yeah. Um. Well, maybe, you know, we've been going for a while here, yeah. so let's, let's, Wrap let's, it up. let's round it out. But, um, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule oh, to come thank you and for ha- I appreciate you taking the time. Out hey, of your schedule. hey, and come and share and, and, and be open and forthright. And, um, you know, I'm a huge admirer and Mutual. supporter of your work and the intellect involved in it and the sharpness and then how it's balanced with this sense of humor that we sort of ended on here. Like, like that's such a gift for me. Um, and you I want to congratulate blushing on. A, I know on a I want to congratulate you on all your successes and, and keep it rolling into the future. Oh, thank you. Joe. Thanks Sarah. Thank you. And we've made it to the end. A quick reminder that listeners can learn more about this project and the artists featured by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also find the series and subscribe in iTunes. Thank you for listening and check back soon for a new episode.